Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. And we are live once again. Awesome. Takes a little while to get some folks streaming in here with us. We'll have some some people joining shortly. Awesome. Glad to see some folks joining in. Borgo passes in here. Fantastic. Um so I am Ian the Wolfman, Ian Bates here. I am the founder and one of the co-hosts of this page, Universal Studios Monsters. Um, we're, this is a new episode of uh, We Are the Monsters. And this episode is going to be a little different than some things that we're used to. Um, in the past, I would have a guest or uh, my co-host London would have a guest and we'd kind of talk about um, the guest past and their love of Universal Monsters and that sort of thing. So... Uh, about a month and some change ago, we actually did a, a special episode, and that was to honor the memory and the legacy of Riku Browning. So uh, I was joined by Jim Towns. Uh, he's one of the, the co-hosts and founders of the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast, as well as Austin Gill Hill from Universal Monsters Universe. Uh, and when we were done with that episode, Jim reached out and asked, hey, you, you know, we should keep doing these and uh, do discussions and that sort of thing. So that's what tonight is. This is really kind of a free-for-all, but we do have a uh, a theme, as you can see, all the Wolfman stuff here. So um, Jim and his co-host from Borgo Pass, uh, Mr. Livio Moreno, are going to join us, and we're going to break down and talk all things Wolfman, Larry Talbot, that sort of thing. So I'm going to get them to join in, and we'll kick this show off. So thanks so much for joining, everybody. And then I'm also going to reach out to, let me see, Livio, there we go, I am inviting Livio right now, so, Jim, what's up, brother? Hey, yeah, yeah, you're good. Uh, good. Not much Absolutely. Am I okay? Awesome. Good. We, we exactly. got to those technical yeah. issues we had last time, that's great. <laughs> Well, give us a few of these. We'll figure this out. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. Yeah, for sure. I should be thanking you. I I can't take the credit here. This is kind of your idea, and uh, I'm (laughs) going to be doing this. Um, Cool. So all good things. All right. Cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, you know, Libby and I had just recently done uh, Ghost of Frankenstein on the podcast, and, you know, we're kind of exploring kind of the, the Cheney Jr. aspect of, of that film uh, as it relates to you know, the one sure. time he played the monster. And then it started becoming, the, you know, we started talking about the, the monster and all the different actors who played him. And then inevitably we talked about the Wolfman being obviously the only universal monster that only one actor ever played. Uh, and so this, this seemed like a really smart thing. And obviously, you know, your connection to the Wolfman is is so strong. Livio is a gigantic uh, Lon Chaney Jr. file. Um, 
uh, as well. So I just, it, yeah, it seems like a good place to start, hopefully. And, and I, oh, I think for it's sure. a fun sure. discussion. Yeah. There's lots I know, um, yeah. I hope we're not having technical difficulties again. It said Livio was unable to join. Um, Livio, do, do me a favor. If, if you couldn't join from my invite, there's a little tab down at the bottom of the screen where you can request to join. Maybe give that a, a try. Um, yeah. Sorry, everybody. Technical difficulties as always. Um, so when did, uh, Jim, why don't you tell us how Livio got involved in Borgo Pass? Uh, yeah, because he's not part, he's not uh, <laughs> here to defend himself, so I can just say whatever I want. This is great. No, um, uh, so I started Borgo Pass uh, uh, with a guy named Scott Kelly. Yeah. In 2021, I think we were, we had our first uh, episode, which is, it, God, we're going into like our second year now, our third year. Um, and uh, and at some point he, he said, hey, there's this guy named Livio, who I think I think it was Son of Frankenstein was yeah. Livio's first episode with us, I want to say. Um, and he's like, he's like, he's a big Long Chain Junior fan. So like, you know, because we, we, we'd had a few different guests on and some of those worked out great and some of them worked fine, you know. Um, and then Livio came on, and Livio just, you know, it was just a store of knowledge of of uh, of, of Chain Engineer and Universal and Universal Bit characters. He knows all the guys and stuff. So he's great at this. Um, I tend to be. I mean, I'm. I, I know that. I know my facts. Obviously, this is the world I walk in. Um, but I try to be more come at the show from like a a filmmaker right, right. standpoint which is what i do for a living and 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 sort of talk, i like to talk about themes i like to talk about uh uh the cultural aspects of these films and how they relate to the cultures then and now um so sometimes some of the names and dates and sure, sure. That escape me because there's only so much room um and and uh but what happened was uh livio started uh helping us uh, work on the editing of the episodes uh, he's a whiz with, you know, all sorts of tech kind of stuff. Um, and then last year, about the middle of the year, Scott right. said he wanted to move on and do other things besides the show. Because the show oh, is sure. frankly a lot of work. It's, it's you know, it, it's to, to to watch the films. I mean, to, to sort of like like uh, 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 administrate the, the, the show itself. Obviously, you have to figure out how to, which movies to do in what order and how you want to move through the, right. the stock of, you know, films we have. Um, but then, yeah, to watch them, to make notes. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about Libio. I take, it probably takes me three or four hours to go through yeah, a universal yeah. film and make all the notes. And stuff. <laughs> right, you're, right. you're pausing and, oh, wait, you know, oh, no, okay, hang on. You know, yeah, it takes a while. Um, and then you actually, you know, produce the show, do it, and then there's editing, and then there's posting, and there's the administration of that, and the social media. It's a big commitment. So there's no, you know, it's just, I always say, like, everything you love, if you really for sure. it enough, for sure. it's going to become work. Oh, yeah. And oh, you absolutely. know this, running this page. Yeah. So, so, so you know, ben, you know, Scott decided he, his time was better spent in some other uh, other things, and he moved on. And I took over the, the show wholeheartedly. Um, but obviously, it's more than a one-person one job. And, and, you know, I kind of, my, my first person I reached out sure. to Olivia to see like, hey, you know, this is this, you know, this, this some things are changing. We're going to change the show a little bit. We're going to, you know, um, sort of change its tone a bit. And what I wanted to start doing, and I knew I knew I could do with Livio as as my main co-host was, um, I want to be a little less like two buddies having some drinks talking about these movies, and more sure. dare I say a little bit of a scholarly discussion 
about about films that we all know very well and some films we some of us don't know that well and and libya is great like that we do a really um we we have fun doing these and it seems like the longer the episodes have gone on like like if we if we can take a movie that's an hour and six minutes long and talk about for two and a half hours people say there he is fine with that hey there he is so it's been it's been great and the show's evolved and and libya's a fantastic partner to uh to have on this I, he didn't I hear anything to trash talk connect. Before he I was trying on, to right? connect through my uh, computer here, and that wasn't working. I hope you can hear me okay doing this through the phone. <laughs> cool. Hey, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we got you. I, I, I do it through the phone. Yeah. So, uh, Livio, thanks so much for joining. No, no problem. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is kind of our first interaction. So, uh, I feel like I, I know you fairly well just from yeah, listening okay. to the episodes. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm like a ma- absolutely. Match so maker. We yeah. have the two guys from Borgo Pass Nerd, right Nerd here. That, how awesome night. is that? Um, so it's gonna be a fun night. Um, Livio, I'm, you know, most, most people here on the monster page are familiar with Jim. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your history and your love for uh, the universal monsters? Oh, my, my love for these films go back literally as far as I can remember. The One of my earliest memories, the first movie I ever remember seeing was Dracula. It was like early some Saturday morning or something like that. My mom was was watching it. She's really the reason why I'm, I'm into these because she grew up, you know, in the 50s and 60s, kind of watching these on TV for the first time back then. And by proxy in the late 80s, when they were occasionally shown, here in Kansas City, I'd, I'd watch them. And then <clears throat> as I started getting into school, my school library had those orange bound Crestwood House uh, books. I think they came out in like the 70s or so. So I was always looking at those and looking at the pictures. And then the classic collection started coming out in VHS. And it was, that was all she wrote. <laughs> I started getting those and just watching them and, and I just fell in love and it's never, never stopped. Oh, that's perfect, man. That's, that's beautiful. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I just love that. You know, it's, uh, you guys are a bit older than I am. Um, but I f- feel like we all have that similar, the Crestwood books, like, um, picking up the VHS tapes, that sort of thing. Um, and then here we are, we're all in different, you know, parts of the country and we get to talk about this and keep the legacy, uh, going. That, that's what this has always been about for me. So, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, when we started the live, um, we've always kind of th- these episodes, these live streams have been tell us about yourself. We've never really done a themed uh, episode. And tonight it, we're we're starting things off with the legacy of the Wolfman uh, and the curse of Larry Talbert. And, um, you know, I think Jim came up with the idea. and I think he kind of catered it <laughs> towards Livio and myself, because I'm such a diehard Wolfman fan. Uh, and I was talking with Olivio a bit before we started, and I said, I didn't make any notes. Like, I'm completely confident and comfortable just diving into this. Um, so I just, I, I, yeah. I just wrote down, I just wrote down dates and stuff, because that's if, what I, I if never, there's I ever a, remember. So, a yeah, time my, where we have to record a show and a podcast episode in like really short time. Jim will choose something starring Lon Chaney Jr. And I have <laughs> zero prep work. I'm like, Rick, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> no, perfect. He, he's I just good it. to go. It's the funniest thing. Yeah. I do all the notes. So, he's like, oh, um, where should we start? I guess, you know, th- there's five films. And, I, you know, Jim, what you were uh, talking about earlier, um, 
when you started, you know, with, with Lon Chaney Jr. and goes to Frankenstein and that sort of thing. And then you start to realize like Chaney Jr. was the only actor to play the Wolfman um, in all five films. So that's a huge legacy and very unique in its own right, right there. So y'all want to start talking about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, well, you know, it's, and, and here's where my dates are going to pay off. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, I think that's the thing a lot of people know, and I think it's really interesting. And, and when Liv and I were doing Ghost of Frankenstein, I ended up actually doing, going through IMDb and looking at the dates of, of his work. So, so, you know, he, he comes on and launching engineer comes on universal and does man-made monster. And, th- and that's a, that's a, enough of a hit that he gets Wolfman and, and Wolfman's such a hit that, that he is now, um, uh, their, their main guy because because the other thing that happened during this era of the Wolfman more or less is Arsenic and Old Lace opened up on Broadway and Arsenic and Old Lace for anyone who's not familiar with it was it was a very popular stage play that ended up being a film and within the the, the text of the play um, the main character's brother who's a criminal uh, has had plastic surgery and it was either botched or came out bad enough that he he comes out looking like Boris Karloff and everyone comments within the play that he looks like Boris Karloff. They use the name. So of course, Boris Karloff was part of the, the, the original run of the play in Broadway. So this takes Boris, Boris Karloff. I mean, Boris Karloff is kind of done with Universal at this point after Son of Frankenstein anyway, 39, but, but this kind of takes Boris Karloff like out of the picture and Universal doesn't have access to him anymore. And then, and then eventually the play becomes so popular that there's different touring groups of it. And Bella Lugosi ends up touring with Arsenic Old Lace 2 at some point. So what, what you're left with is, is Lunch King Jr. is the last man, sta- the last monster standing, shall we say, at Universal. So within a few years, so in, in 1941, he does Man-Made Monster and The Wolfman. 1942, he does Ghost of Frankenstein and The Mummy's Tomb. It's still, it's still you know, not crazy, right? 1944, he, 1943, he does Son of Dracula, Calling Dr. Death. 1944, he does Weird Woman, The Mummy's Ghost, Dead Man's Eyes, House of Frankenstein, and The Mummy's Curse. Um, he, and then 1945, he does The Frozen Ghost, Strange Confession, House of Dracula, Pillow of Death. Um, so he's doing, he's, the thing I just wanted right off the bat, just talk about like, like Lon Chaney Jr. is, is doing, who is, I think, the most respected of Universal Studios actors. I think Karloff usually gets the, the most respect as being a thespian. Um, I think it's, I think a lot of the stories about Cheney's drinking and, and behavior tend to distract us from the amazing amount of work that guy churned out for Universal Studios in an incredibly short period of time. And and also, like, like they say, like, you know, he played all the different Universal monsters at one point. He played Dracula, he played Frankenstein, he monster, he played Wolfman, he played, you know, the mummy. But he did that within like a year and a half of each other too. It's not like a spread out thing. Like this guy was single-handedly carrying Universal's horror franchises, like three or four of Universal horror franchises, like like along with them on top of bringing us probably the most poignant, meaningful, uh, sympathetic Universal monster of all of them. And, and on top of doing um, the Wolfman in, in five different films. So I, I just... You, this was like an obvious thing for us to like, for me, for us to do like right off the bat. This is just, this is a story that I think gets 
mutated or or told in in the wrong light a lot by horror fans until pretty recently and i think it's worth kind of visiting and spending time yeah and, and I, some you know uh, i think we live i say we horror fans lived through uh that with bela lugosi for a long time where Lugosi was kind of seen as mm-hmm. second banana to boris karloff and then i think around the late 90s early 2000s that started to shift a little bit and lugosi really started to get a lot of credit for his performances even in in the you know monogram pictures and, and things like that where it's obvious a poverty row type type film but he gave it his all um like i remember the 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 reaction when the universal put out the bela lugosi collection and it was you know his films with boris karloff where previously that that, that would not have happened i think now 20 some years after that we're starting to see a little bit finally Lon Chaney Jr. get some of that same respect that I think is is very well deserved and earned um you know he he he's a much better actor I'm obviously biased but he's much better actor than typically given credit for um I think a lot of his critiques just involve the fact that he played a lot of these these monsters the second time around um, in a way that parallels his entire career, having living in the shadow of his father. Um, but the one thing that he's hardly never critiqued on is the Wolfman. It's something that he created himself. It's something that I don't think anyone else could could follow as effective as, as he could. You know, his what he was able to bring to the Wolfman is, is ironically, it's, it's one of the things that he's also critiqued, which is his you know, his appearance, his American accent, his mannerisms, all those together in Larry Talbot made him such a relatable character. You know, I can watch The Wolfman. I can relate to Larry Talbot. I can, not that I personally am a werewolf, but I can put myself in his shoes and I can, you know, the anguish that that he's going through. I'm not sure that Lugosi or Karloff could pull that off to that effect in that specific role. They could certainly in other in other roles, but when it comes specifically to the Wolfman, you know that was all Cheney's, and and I think that you know there's there's a definite reason that only he played that role because I just don't think anyone else would have been able to to get away with doing it as well as he could. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, he, he, you know, he was certainly younger than Karloff and Lugosi, and he was American, and. I think that specific combo of things kind of placed him on top in the 40s for Universal. Um, Not to discredit Karloff or Lugosi, but, you know, they were on their way out. And the 40s films felt modern. Um, You know, the pre-code era, it felt you couldn't really distinguish, you know, what time place is this uh is this taking place in and um y- you know you have you have cars and I, I think one of the most interesting things about the wolfman is it's kind of a bridge between old world and new world and y- you know you have uh maliva and, and balan they're in wagons and that sort of thing and then the you know the very first scene he drives up in a like a brand new car and they go up to talbot castle and uh Right. So, Telescopes yeah, and it, it, that was perfect right. for Cheney Jr. Um, he brought this new age life and this youth to Universal Monsters. And uh, 
I think that was exactly what the studio needed. And obviously, you know, there was a, a boom um, with Cheney Jr. after the Wolfman. Yeah, definitely. And Universal yeah, yeah. took advantage of that. And, That's why and, he was so many of those movies. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I think in, if you would have asked him at that time, he would have liked to branch out. You know, he, he wanted to be more of a leading man, more in, of a romantic type of, uh, you know, actor. Um, he didn't want to just play monsters, but he was under contract to Universal. And, it, you know, he had, uh, we mentioned this, Jim, in, in, when, on the Ghost of Frankenstein episode, I think, you know, he did not have the, the clout of a Boris Karloff who could mm. say, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, um, Universal, that's why they put him in mummy movie right. after mummy movie, you know, after, you know, all these monster films just in a factory like style, one right after the other. And that, that must have been very taxing and, and just would wear on a person, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think very similar to Lugosi, I think Universal in in the '40s um, took advantage of of Cheney Jr. in the in the same way they took advantage of Lugosi in the '30s, um, with you know uh, exploiting him, exploiting his name, obviously exploiting whose son he was, um, but not uh, but not respecting him to the degree that I, I think he probably, he, you know, he deserved. And I think he knew he deserved uh, as well. I mean, he, he was a, he was a legacy actor who kind of didn't want to be like he wanted, I, you know, so much of, of what people talk about him is about him trying to get out from under the shadow of his much more famous father. And I think the irony of, of that kind of tough situation for him because he had a complicated relationship with his father as well it wasn't just a professional it was it was a personally kind of compli- very complicated relationship but i think the irony of that now in 2023 is while if you stepped outside of our little classic monster circle right and talk to people in the real world and you know civilians uh, if i may um i i think I think, yeah, they're they're going to kind of know about the Man of a Thousand Faces, and they're going to kind of know uh, the original Silent Phantom, and and maybe uh, Hunchback. Uh, they're not going to know, you know, the, the, all the other crazy Browning movies he did, like West of Zanzibar and stuff like that. But I think if you if you show a picture of the Wolfman to them, or even Lon Chaney Jr., they're going to. I think more people are going to recognize him and his work. I think him and his he I think Cheney Jr. and his work actually had a bigger and longer lasting cultural impact, a larger impact, definitely on merchandising than than his dad. So so in a way, the guy who lived in the shadow of his father did sort of eclipse his father, but I, I think it happened later. I, I don't think it I don't think he was able to see that in his in his lifetime. But I do think that's one of the ironies of, of the situation of the, of the, of the Absolutely. And situation. you talk about cultural impact. I mean, his, I know this is, this is not horror related, but his performance as Lenny in a mice and men, you know, the impact that, that, yeah. that his characterization of Lenny had and has had ever since then has really long lasting. I mean, in a lot of ways, Lon Chaney Jr. was cast in that same type of Lenny role 
from then all the way up through you know the end of his career um, because he did it so well. And then you have you know any any one of us ever grew up watching Looney Tunes? They parodied that so many times. You know which way did he? Which, which way did he go? Oh. It's that's that's Lenny. That my entire childhood, I didn't realize that that was based on Steinbeck. That's hilarious. The, the two cats, like, hey George, where are we? Yeah, it's it's based on which were the the, the yeah unbelievable um the rabbits uh yeah i mean he was so proud of 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 mice and men of of his lenny on stage and then in, in the in the in the cinema and you know uh if you haven't listened to our ghost of frankenstein episode in borgo past we we i sort of had like a epiphany in this moment where i think i i natively understood that lenny his character for mice and men and the, and his version of the frankenstein monster are so similar they're both these gigantic powerful creatures that don't know their own strength and they're very innocent in their mind and soul, maybe not suited to the cold realities of the world. Um, I think it had been subconsciously whatever, but, but it came full on while we were talking during the episode. I was like, wow, I mean, the, the Frankenstein monster really is Lenny. I mean, he's just, he's just a big kind of, kind of simple guy who doesn't know his own strength and therefore, you know, <laughs> don't mess with him because, you know, he's going to, like I say, he's going to, if, if you're nice to him, he'll be nice back to you. But if you're cruel to him, the cruelty is going to come back at you like yeah. tenfold. Like it's going to come crashing down on you as, as everybody finds in that film. Yeah, that's great. That's one of the things I, I love um, about Cheney Jr. is, you know, to your point, Jim, like he kind of outshined his father in a certain respect. And he always wanted to, right. to branch out. You know, I remember reading stories and hearing stories about his father telling him, stay out of Hollywood, stay out of showbiz. Um, yeah. And yeah, obviously he didn't. And obviously I, I don't think his intention was to ever go down the horror path. Um, but damn, I'm so glad he did because we got, I, I've, yeah. I feel like the Wolfman and Larry Talbot, people could argue this. I feel like he's the most human of, of the monsters. I mean, because nine times out of 10, he is human. Uh, and then, you know, whenever the moon comes out, um, but he's so freaking relatable. And I, I just don't, don't, no one else could pull off that, that emotional draw. Um, and I, I, I wonder how much Cheney Jr. and his portrayal or even leading up to them filming, how, you, you know, cause Kurt Seodmach was the writer. He was the screenplay writer and he wrote the Wolfman. He wrote Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. He wrote House of Frankenstein. I'm not sure if he did House of Dracula. To my knowledge, he didn't. But I know those three. And we get this narrative structure for that character. And I I feel like just based on those three films being written by the same man um, and having Chaney Jr. in that role, after 39, Son of Frankenstein, and then goes to Frankenstein, like the latter part of the, the monster mashup movies, they are essentially following Larry Talbot specifically. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is his story. And he just come, happens to come into contact with these other characters, Frankenstein's monster, um, Dracula, you know, and I, I think it's Ar- arguably right. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein too. He's, he, he, Larry Talbot right. turns into the protagonist of yeah. the stories. He's actually the hero. He's 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 a monster in himself, but but he's not a willing monster. 
he's a victim and he's turned the misfortune especially in which and we'll obviously be getting this but especially by the time you get to Abner Costello meet Frankenstein Larry Talbot has decided he is he's made himself Dracula's arch nemesis he's the one hunting him he's the one who who calls uh uh, uh Chuck and Wilbur and you know from London and and follows them and, and and he's the main he he drives the story in the latter three films really like it's really interesting is he's i always talk about like being proactive as a protagonist like he, is is jonathan harker a protagonist in 1931 dracula yes does he really accomplish anything at all no he doesn't um so it, it's it's hard it's harder to root for him being a modern audience because he's he's kind of a guy who sits around and like things happen to him um by the time you're getting into House of Dracula and especially I mean, Gosselby Frankenstein, Larry Talbot's driving the plot. He's the one who's, who's you know, the, the bad guys are trying to do one thing. He's trying to stop them from doing it. And everyone else, and the monster wakes up and trashes the place the last five minutes of every movie. So yeah, it, it's it's this awesome, you get these little glimpses of, of where he's at specifically in his life and these chapters. And it's like five chapters, you know, essentially these five films. And the yeah. first film, you get the introduction, and then it's like the second, third, fourth film. He just wants to die. I want to die. I don't want to. And then by the the last film, there's no mention of like. I mean, he has the torment, you know, the tormented soul part still, but there's no yeah. really, there's no big mention of him. Oh, I just want to die. Like he's actively trying to stop Dracula. Can you, can you imagine the conversation of him right. and him and Lou Costello trying to explain to Lou Costello <laughs> right. he wants to die? Yeah. <laughs> I would have played really um, well with kids. So, so it's like they he gets to this them. point where he realizes, no matter what, I can't die. You can't kill me. Well, let me do something decent. And if the Wolfman's still going to be a part of this world, well, maybe I can get rid of Dracula at least. So it's it's fascinating. It's it's really great. It, if I'm going to be invulnerable, maybe I should go up against someone else who's invulnerable. Who sure need stopping so it becomes yeah he again he goes in five films he goes from victim to hero it's really i i I, none i mean as much as i love the dracula films as much as i love frankenstein movies none of the other of the big three at least let's let's focus on that none of them haven't have the have the arc that the wolfman does the wolfman you know it's not perfect it's it has its bumps but it is absolutely all the way through that last much maligned, you know, until recently much maligned Costello, Evan Costello movie, it's, it, it makes sense. It makes an emotional sense. It makes logical sense a little bit. It, it does seem like he, he goes back in time a little bit and comes forward in time because some of the movies, the, the settings get a little confusing. We were just talking about this on House of Frankenstein that it seems like House of Frankenstein takes place in the time before Wolfman just because we don't see cars. We don't see everything. They've kind of lent more into the, 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 uh, parochial thing but um but yeah um it's it's just it's it's a one-off in the annals of 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 uh um universal it's i mean and, and it's it's due to cheney but it's due to a lot of other yeah. faces too not, yeah not i really love how other. how cheney was able to do the little nuances in talbot the way he played talbot to really set the stage for where the character was at at that frame in his life because you see him in the wolfman and he's you know, happy-go-lucky, but then 
he gets bitten and he has no clue what's going on and he he's confused he, he's got these memories he doesn't know what they mean and then he has the realization and then you know that's the end of the movie frankenstein meets the wolf man when he's resurrected he he's out of it then he realizes you know where he is and and then he's he's very he's a force of nature in that he doesn't want this anymore um house of frankenstein it's he's almost a little resigned to the fact that okay i don't trust this you know dr neiman guy I, I don't i don't want to be here and he's he's just depressed very depressed <laughs> and house of dracula he kind of comes out of it a little bit he he trusts dr adamon a little bit more he does encounter dracula for a brief scene and and you know the small way gets involved with that and he he gets cured Unfortunately, the cure was apparently temporary because he's back in Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein. But to your point, by that time, he's, he's not he's not focused on ending his own life or getting rid of his own affliction. He's focused on stopping Dracula and stopping the Frankenstein monster because he's had enough experiences with them to know that they cause real harm to people with intent. Yeah. So it's, and it's, yeah. it's strange that, yeah. you know... It, all those those movies that storyline arc came about in an era that you know there was no such thing as home video nobody could go back and and refresh you know the avengers and all those movies were out you know people could watch a dvd and catch you know part one and and get caught up you know unless somebody went and saw frankenstein meets wolfman from two years ago or a year ago they wouldn't necessarily know what's the backstory to house of frankenstein and so on and so forth so they have to stand alone more than a modern series of films would have to. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think something we also picked on, in, I think when we just did House of Frankenstein, Livia was, you know, you realize that by the time, even the second film, by the time Frankenstein meets the Wolfman comes out, Larry Talbot outlived everyone he loves. I mean, he's already outlived his mom and, and his brother who, who dies in the accident right before we, we start the Wolfman. So really the only pe people left he cares about are um, his dad and, and Gwen. Um, his dad, obviously we, we find out in the beginning of Frank, uh, Frankenstein versus Wolfman is died. We can assume something happens to Gwen because, because time goes on and he, he's killed, he's resurrected, he's killed, he's resurrected. The years have gone on and this comes to the, the most poignant moment, I swear, and I, I never noticed until we did the episode on it, is when um, I'm going to blank on the, the name of Alonka. the Romani girl okay. character yeah. that he rescues. In Alonka. Also Frankenstein. Yes, Alonka. Um, he, he introduces himself to her as, as Lawrence. And we've, we've, you know, all through the first film, we know him as Larry. He introduces her to Lawrence, to himself to her as Lawrence. And she asks him, do, do, do people call you Larry? To. And he just says they used to. And it's the, it's such a little line, but it's the saddest line because you do realize he has, He's outlived everyone he cares about, and he had so he's he has to find a new reason. If, if yeah. he can't die, he's got to find a new reason to live, and that's it's just, um, just yeah, nothing else. I know I would argue very little characters in movies in the sixty some years, eighty years, some years since have reached that level of pathos. Kind of like it's really it's an impressive thing, and it's just impressive that we still have it and it's available. We can watch it over and over again. We can watch them in sequence. We can, yeah. You know, I think a lot of um, it's, it's solid contemporary things when it comes to werewolf almost reaches a, a fantasy um, type of genre as opposed to a horror genre. I've always felt that the horror of the wolfman isn't necessarily the 
the monster he turns into, it's the fact that this is a human who has to live with this torment, has to live with the actions that he really has no control over. You know, that, that's where that, that pathos comes in and, you know, the, the relatability plays a big, big part into that. I think once you get into stories where you have, you know, tribes of werewolves and people who willingly just change at will to, to fight vampires and stuff like that, that that's, to me, that's not exactly horror. You know, the, the, the horror is that, yeah, no, not to name, not to name names. You know, like I said, the, the horror is that Larry Talbot will wake up the next morning, will remember the things that he just did the night before and and have to live with that and deal with that and know that it's going to happen again. Yeah, it's the curse element. And I think, you know, Jim, you've mentioned before talking about how there's a bit of humanity in all the monsters except for maybe Dracula because Dracula, it's like, he almost has to kind of choose, you know, Dr- Dracula's fine with doing what he's doing. Um, and, and, you know, Larry, it, it never, it, it never gets any better. And it's like, the more he does it, the worse he feels. Um, so it is just this, like, it's a, he's a tortured soul. And, um, yeah, that, that's, that's my favorite element too. And I, I feel like it makes, that character the most horrific of all the monsters um it's just like you know what do you do um yeah because it's he's helpless he's really helpless yeah. it's, I don't, it's so strange I think yeah really became um, relatable until oh, what year was that 74 when jack palance did his rendition and then they introduced reincarnated mm-hmm. long lost love type type of thing. stuck with it ever since right you know yeah, that they they lean heavy. They essentially the just added plots yeah. of the mummy to to that story to the Dracula story. Um, That's true. It, it's the mummy. To your yeah. point. I mean, I think Frankenstein is is relatable, especially for children. You know, to, to say I I wasn't asked to be born. I I don't understand this world. Why are people being mean to me and, and things like that? I think Larry Talbot is is definitely the most relatable because. It, you know, <laughs> we've all had regrets. We, you know, we've all had things that we we wish we could take back or or wish didn't happen. Um, and his what his character goes through really taps into that, and and that's it, it is I think a very universally um, relatable concept. For sure, I want to yes. uh, I want to mention something, and I'm not going to go too deep into spoiler territory, but. I have this awesome book here, uh, The Return of the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. And this came out in 1998. And it's a decent little novel by um, yeah. Jeff Rovin is the author's name. Long out of print. I had to uh, I had to pay a little bit of money for that one. But um, it's great. And it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it is very much a continuation of Larry Talbot's story post Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. And the guy knows his stuff i mean i was just blown away i I figured there'd be some reference and that sort of thing but his knowledge surpasses ours i'm sure uh it's ridiculous the stuff that he gets into but it does it picks up after the events of abbott costello uh meet frankenstein and um you know talbot as the wolfman and bela lugosi's dracula are fighting and um you know it goes out on the balcony 
balcony and Dracula turns into the bat and the wolfman like pounces on the bat and they fall into the ocean. Uh, spoiler alert, that's how they die at the end of that film. Um, <laughs> and it's like, you know, they're not dead. You can't kill a vampire and a werewolf that way. So it does. It picks up with them falling into the water and what happens after that. And that's cool. But the stuff that he does in this book that I really, really liked is he breaks down dates and timeline and goes into, you know, he married Melissa uh, yeah. from House of Dracula. And uh, then he ends up, spoiler alert, killing her by accident. And, uh, you know, things like that. So that that's kind of where the book leans. And the other thing, really, really cool thing he does in this book, he explains why the Wolfman can't die. Because um, in the movies, it's, you know, the first film he's, you know, beaten to death by Sir John with the silver cane. And then he's drowned and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and uh, Alonka shoots him with a silver bullet and House of Dracula. And then he's cured in House of Dracula. And so he goes into detail, like, why this didn't work. And uh, So he kind of discovers um, the only thing that's, he can't die, no matter what. You cannot kill him. You can keep him at bay. And uh, he gets Joan. She was like the, the lead role, the, the female lead in Abbott and Costello. Meet Frankenstein to take a, a piece of silver. It was like a silver-backed mirror. Like So he takes a shard. We lost Jim. He'll be back. Um, I'm sure Jim's going to want to hear my explanations. So <laughs> let me pause for a minute. Let me see if I can find him. Here we go. Sending him an invite. Sorry about that, guys. There he is. No worries. Sorry, I, I paused. Um, <laughs> trying to mute myself for a Escape. minute. Um, so he gets Joan to take a piece of silver-backed mirror and shove it into his heart. Um, and he's like, I think this is the only way. Hmm. But if you ever, so they kind of take, they take the, uh, uh, like this, you know, the stake thing. And if you pull it out, will it be resurrected? And uh, so so the book came out in 1998. It was 50 years after Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So I think that was kind of the celebration behind the book, 50th anniversary. Was it, is it 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 licensed? It's a universal. Yeah. Back when it first came out, it was yeah. uh, a grocery store or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah you'd see, I'd see it. I remember seeing it in Walmart and that sort of thing. But, that's, but um, <laughs> oh, and young Livio was like, yeah. "Give me." So uh, <laughs> you know, that's what I just explained. Absolutely. That's all. You know, first fifty pages, and uh, you know, it's fifty years later, so it's present day, nineteen ninety eight, and the book, and something happens, and he gets the uh, the shard pulled out and he wakes up 50 years later and it's like wow what happens and he nail he nails the oh my gosh 50 years and i'm 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 a lot like he nails the whole tortured soul aspect of it. and it's re- it's really really cool so yeah that's really neat my because my introduction to the wolfman uh and i've talked about so much show and everything so so i'm a little older than both of you guys i was born in 74 so in the 80s early the 80s i'm in grade school and we had the crestwood house books in our grade school library like right 
Um, uh, and the one I, I, and I, I had a book about in like third grade or something like that. I had a book about monsters and it, and it became like a, a thing for me. And it kind of obviously resulted in the silliness. We, we all know that is me now. Um, but, but I was, you know, I'm, I'm like a few minutes before home video at this point. Uh, I think I saw Wolfman in fourth grade. Uh, I rented it uh, from the video store. It was one of the first movies I ever rented. But right before that, I had, or maybe after that, I'm not sure, right around this time, um, the Crestwood book that, about uh, uh, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman, meets Wolfman. And and that's the thing that imprinted me, because again, what you're saying, uh, Ian, like it, it was writing, it was like a narrative version of what's going on. So you are you're inside the Wolfman's head. You're inside Larry Talbot's head. You're you're writing from this like internal monologue thing. And as a young guy reading again this idea of a of a which I don't think has ever really been done as well nearly since the idea of a main character who just wants to die and can't. It's the one thing he wants, and it's the one thing he can't do. He can do anything else almost. He's you know he's super powerful he's a wolf man he can travel anywhere he, does, he doesn't have to worry about the sun or anything like dracula he doesn't you know he doesn't need electricity like the monster you know he's just um but it's the idea of like this this amazingly poignant characterization about this this tragic <laughs> character it's just incredible there it is that's oh, awesome. i'm so jealous i'm i'm gonna have to pick up all of those one these days but like if you go on ebay and look at the prices like, okay well I guess, yeah, I'm sell, I guess sell a script I, or something. I remember the most wow. about because I I read all of these books before I ever saw the movies, and yeah, I I like was I was glued to that book before I was actually able to really see the movie. The one thing that book mentions that you never see in the movie is it mentions that Vazek is is swept away by the flood after he blows up the dam. You never <laughs> see. Oh, really? Oh, cool. But, just kind of like right that's poetic justice yeah. well that's poetic that's good it's good to know yeah yes now when i watch the movie i'll know that that happens I'll be like, no he totally got swept away that's good mm-hmm. that's that's uh that's canon at this point we we can we can we can say that for sure that's interesting that's really that's really cool um but like yeah it's 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 a it's a character that like you're saying Ian, like it's a character that works as well in in fiction and there and and you know narrative as it does in, on film i mean the, the the things that make the character work make just yeah. work no matter yeah. what the medium. I, I, I really like he um the author Jeff Roven he he just does this fantastic job of not that there's really massive plot holes in the Wolfman narrative but he offers a little bit more explanation behind some things like mm. um you know when when Larry first comes into contact with um. Oh, uh, with Joan Raymond, she she's like, well, just lock yourself up on a full moon night, and he's like, no, no, no. he's like, you you yeah. don't understand. Yeah. Uh, so you know, House that, of Dracula was the only time we actually see him like in a barred cell, and he says, yeah, the power of the wolf, like just gets, t- it's like tenfold after that, and he's he says it's painful, it, it's physically painful if I lock myself. Mm-hmm. And bar- I'm like, uh, okay, you, you know, that's, that's, um, oh, yeah. so uh, he takes a little bit of creative liberty, but I think it really works because it's like, I, you know, that's good. why wouldn't he just do that? Um, cause it, yeah, it's one of the big plot holes in Wolfman 
to, to be honest, right. is that he gets tied up to the chair. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, he's out stalking on the moors. Like it's one of the big, I wouldn't be surprised if, if something, maybe Livio, I don't know, was, if something was written and not filmed or filmed and not and edited out, explaining that, that, that logical jump, that one minute he's tied up and the next I'm minute he's, he's ex- loose. Especially, I don't like, know. But, explain, I think, is more just implied that he just broke free, right. you know. He just got free, yeah. Yeah, you do, but you don't see the chairs like that. To, to be honest, I'd probably seen the movie thirty times before that. Even it makes me think of the uh, the inspector in Frankenstein meets Wolfman, where he's like he he you know he chewed out a straitjacket with his yeah. teeth, and he's like with it with his teeth <laughs> with his teeth with his teeth. I can't remember that actor's name because he's in he's in Shoe of London too. He's constantly and, and, being befuddled by Anthropes. Um, the inspector. No, no. It's he the plays. Uh, oh gosh, what's the what's the inspector's oh, name in, uh, in the Sherlock Holmes stories? Dennis. Yeah, Lestrade. Yeah, yeah. Lestrade. He's essentially playing the same character he played in Sherlock, all the Sherlock Holmes yeah. movies. Yeah. 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 Dumbfounded. He's always fun. British police guys. Again, we we always talk. We talk about British mustache acting a lot on the show. There's a lot of there's a lot of those big players that just they had big mustaches and they were British and they just were they 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 build a necessary every time you needed to be reminded you're in England. Right. Since so many of the actors don't have English accents, they they could have one of these guys coming in and be like, oh, that's right, it's a Bobby and he has a British accent, so we're in England. So even in like Abner Costello would meet Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, like, oh, that's right, we're in England. It's our buddy. It's easy uh, to forget. Brian from Uni Monsters, he just said, uh, love his power to change outfits. And I was thinking when we were talking about him breaking out of the chair, you yeah. don't see him break out of the chair. You, and, you know, the first mm-hmm. transformation, he's just in like a wife beater. And then he's in, you know, he's yeah. he's all yeah. dolled up and in a button down shirt. So the Wolfman took the first time he transforms, right, right. he takes the time to oh, get on a college shirt and got to go out. Yeah. I love it. I don't know if you've heard my 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 theory as a filmmaker of, of about um, Larry Talbot's penchant for wearing the dark colored shirts. I think it comes from a log- logistical thing in that when he was in the makeup, um, yeah, he's he's dark, right? It's the it's the brown fur, it's the makeup, it's the prosthetic nose and everything like that. So he, his face doesn't have the 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 paleness of you know this. The cameras at the time weren't as sensitive as far as uh, picking up detail and lighting and stuff like that. And it was easy to overexpose things. So my thinking was if, if you've got launching junior in, in full makeup, walking around the Moors set, you know, in universal, he's dark, it's all dark. If he's wearing a white shirt and they were exposing for the darkness, I think the white shirt would have blown out and you would have lost a lot of detail. So I think there was a, somehow there was a, in camera or in in wardrobe or Vera West or, or, um, George White or whomever, someone someone set the precedence like, well, we put him in a dark shirt, and then we can expose everything kind of the same. Everything's in the same values, and I think we get away with. It. I I think the choice is was a logistical one, but it's funny how that brown slash green slash black shirt that he he it, it remains consistent throughout the entire uh, franchise to the point where they had to have Bud Abbott wear a dark shirt in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So that you can set up the idea that right. he and Talbot are dressed similarly, and there's the confusion at the party when he puts on the thing. So, so, so it, to the point where does Bud Albert, Bud Albert, is he like, 
why am I wearing a dark colored uh, shirt suddenly? They're like, well, uh, you have to wear it to this. Like- uh, never mind. It's okay. But I, I, I think, I think, I think it's one of those things that like the, uh, uh, something that's iconic now, I think was actually a logistical choice at the time. And it just turned into the thing we associate with the I like Tom Weaver's explanation, oh. his commentary track on the Wolfman DVD, which is, if you can believe the guy can transform mm-hmm. into a wolf, then you can believe the guy can be <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, or his shoes, his shoes can appear and disappear been, uh, kind of. Morbidly, I say morbidly because I don't think anyone else will sit around and think about this as I would, but what the actual color of his <laughs> shirts were throughout the different movies. that. We've had so There's, many online discussions, you and me, we've had so many text discussions about the shirts it. and stuff. <laughs> it's, it's, there's varying sh- shades between each each movie of, of what it was. Mm-hmm. There are, mm-hmm. there are yeah. I think, two color pictures out there from House of Dracula. Um, and I actually asked Ron Chaney about this at the this last October's Monster Bash. He said that it, it's, it was just a very dark brown in Dracula. Um, and mm-hmm. I think in most like figure merchandising he's always in like this dark green shirt um but it it, it changes yeah I, yeah i think just so he has more color and it's more interesting to to play with right i think there's a marketing or merchandising i think the other one uh, right. is that classic basil gogos art from one of the um famous monster magazines and mm. the the portrait is from house of dracula uh but he's wearing red. So I think red sometimes gets tacked on there too. And then uh, I just recently read, you know, I, I'd say the first three, so Wolfman, Frankenstein meets a Wolfman, House of Frankenstein. I, his makeup is a lot more full. And then you get to House of Dracula. And while it's still Pierce does the makeup for those four, and then we get to the Westmores and Abbott and Costello and, they, you know, it was all a lot more rubber appliances. So uh, the makeup was totally different by the last film. But you get to House of Dracula, and it's clearly a little different. And I just found out recently, if, if, if memory serves, I want to say, um, I don't know why all of a sudden in 45 this happened, but there was a, uh, there was like a shortage for yak hair. And that's what... Um, you know, that's what he used for the, that's what Pierce used for the hair, the makeup, um, for, for the Wolfman. And so, the war. For someone, yeah, the war, but I, I think my question was, I wouldn't be surprised if the I war heard. was what caused the, uh, the yak hair shortage. Well, the war was going on when the first film came out. Um, 41, 40, true. Yeah. Maybe there was yeah. only so they ran out by 45. Ran out. I don't know. The that's makeup fast. is a little different for House of Dracula. That's, that's why. <laughs> It's interesting to. Uh, I think they still I use yak hair in House of Dracula. It's just a lot thinner, a lot shorter. You look, you can, uh, compare so, yeah, yeah. Frankenstein meets a wolf man. It's kind of big and, and yeah. bushy and got yeah. thing around his neck. He's, he's, it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. he went and got a haircut, you know, shy sure. and tight. Because <laughs> uh, you guys heard the thing about, you know, Pier- Pierce would. Um, he would do the, the the put all the hair on, and then then he'd have to singe it with like a like a curling iron. So it's right next to his face the whole time. So it's like this whole idea, like you go through the whole process of doing that. Then there's the burning part of it, and and it smelled awful when it burns. I've never personally burned yak hair, but most other hair I've experienced, oh yeah, is not 
That's where you get that great, so. um, the great yeah, um, this is the promotional other. shot, like the behind the scenes where he's like reared back, like and he's oh, got the right. iron like up ne- next <laughs> yeah, to his face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he got sent a couple times for yeah, sure. Because yeah. yeah. it looks like he's curling his beard, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I I just I'll share it. I just saw someone. Oh, uh, Hor- Hammer Horror One over on Twitter shared like a montage of a bunch of photos of, of Cheney getting made up in oh, one or two awesome. I haven't seen before. I mean, so they're really, the one, it's the, it's the famous one where he's half oh, yeah. and it just looks, yeah. he looks Amish, you know, he's just got the beard part. Right. But, um, but one or two others that were really interesting. And of course there's the, the more, the famous one that's the prototype where he had the, he had the sharp, it's the profile shot. Yeah. This guy's seen it with a sharper nose and he, he looks more like, He's in yeah, uh, Iowa Frankenstein because I, I know they they played around with a, a few different types of uh, makeup before they settled on what they ultimately went with. Um, but that one. Oh really? So yeah. is that Westmore trying like to like re-engineer totally the design? Back and he's got these real pointy ears and and a little no yeah that's yeah. that's West one of Westmore's attempts. Well, Westmore's attempts. His name's on it, but he right. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Probably, probably it was Willis and Patrick. <laughs> I would hope so. Um, uh, um, uh, that's interesting. It's like it's like they try to rejigger the the design and put their own stamp on it, and then obviously at some point someone decided, like, you know what? Why improve on perfection, I'm, right? Like, it's just wonder. Yeah. Wonder if West, Westmore is probably way more. Com- well, I know, obviously, like Glenn Strange, he's always said that the uh, the monster appliance is way more comfortable. And Frankenstein, or I've been Costello mean Frankenstein, so I'm sure the Wolfman had to be, yeah, had to be similar. Yeah. It was probably way more comfortable. Um, yeah. Well, the the foam latex process had become a, a thing at that point. Westmore's did uh, kind of spearhead and 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 in, uh, introduce what we now. I mean, up until silicone took over a couple of years ago, foam latex was just the way everyone did everything all the way up to evil dead and, and, and you know, all the eighties and everything. And it's a lightweight foam that's had lots of air pockets. So it is. Yeah. As opposed to, I think Pierce's stuff was mostly like pure latex and rubber, which is dense. So you have to imagine like the inside of a baseball that, you know, so it's heavy, right? I mean, I think the, the, the Frankenstein head in the photos, when you see Pierce doing it, you can see he, he's actually holding it. Like it, it seemed like it had some weight to it. So, just like everything else they slapped on Boris Karloff, it weighed a lot. So, you know, um, I don't know if I imagine, did the Westmores were, were tangentializing, but did the, was, were the Westmores in charge at Universal in the 60s when they did the Munsters? So would Fred Gwynn's head piece have been made Herman's that way too? The is like the carbon copy of Glenn Strange from yeah. the Springs. Yeah. Even even down to yeah. the design of the yeah. the scar on the, it's almost identical. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So so that's at least something that he had. Even though he had to wear their hot suits like that, but like man, by the time they got to the monsters, they had that. I mean, the thing you kind of laugh off and you don't realize is like again. We'll get get back to Wolfman, but Fred Gwynn's makeup every single episode in every one of the that that show in all two two three seasons they did is perfect every time it's just you know you think about like like that's every day they were doing that to him like five days a week for months at a time um they really perfected it at that point so yeah it was great um anyway uh 
But, but uh, yeah, I, 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 now it's funny you're talking about the, the book, uh, the, you know, t- taking over from um, the end of Abin Costomi Frankenstein, because it's, it's funny how now I saw Abin Costomi Frankenstein before I saw any of the other monster movies, including The Wolfman. So I grew up imprinting on that. And, and until I, I think, I think it's, in the last 20 years that the that film was really regarded with a lot of disdain um a lot of people thought it it uh and a lot of people still do that i run into this in the comments section on on the the borgo pass pages all the time in the social media um really think that those films disrespected uh, people's opinions who i respect say that those films disrespected the monsters and i think you can see it that way too although when you really go back and look at it you realize that the universal had stopped all production of the monsters movies at that point so it's not like those films were like a detour for the monsters it's it's they they resurrect years later literally um from 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 the stasis yeah and 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 really presented them to a new generation of audiences and probably the reason part of the reason we still have these legacies now and Universal kept all the prints and kept them so well preserved, and you know everything is that the enduring popularity of the films. That's a step in them. It's 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 the film, the original ones coming out, the the re the re re releases in the '30s that lead to the second run of Universal. Then it's I think it's Everyone Got Some Wolfman. Then it's like Chiller Theater releases. You know, there, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of reasons why these films have maintained their popularity, not least that they're amazing and they they stand above a lot of the other film horror films that were made concurrently but um having said all that about you know universal about having across so many frankenstein i it's funny how many times the wolfman doesn't die he, he gets he gets like you said he gets clubbed by the silver cane gets shot with silver bullets he gets drowned he gets like that um somehow to me and i think it's because i imprinted it again on as a child the idea that he, the idea that he, he finally dies, if we ignore the book for a second, on on screen, Larry Talbot finally dies in this, this self-sacrifice act, trying to to you know get to, trying to stop Dracula from escaping, is so poetically perfect. And and if it doesn't, I always talk about if it if it doesn't if it's not intellectually logical, it's so it makes so much emotional logic that you go like. Okay, I'm good with that. Like, like I'm, despite any of the naysayers, I'm totally fine with with in my mind. That's how Larry Talbot finally died. He he dies in a moment of heroism. He dies in self sacrifice, and also in like this really cool John Folden special effects shot too, where he, you know, he goes off the thing, and then you have this thing. The music in that moment of the film builds to that whole thing. It's perfect. It seems it seems like they had that plan to me. It seemed, I mean, I didn't know they didn't obviously, but it's, it, it feels to me that from the moment he's been by Bella, the werewolf, Lawrence Talbert's every choice he makes leads him to that moment where he stops this like immense evil from escaping into the world and doing more damage and stuff like that. It is so, I, I have trouble thinking of another character's demise that is so satisfying. Like you don't want him to die. You love Lord Larry Talbot. You want him to keep going. You want more movies. But if he's going to go, like there's worse. You know, there's less satisfying ways he could have gone out. That's a really satisfying way to go. So 
you know, that's that's just me. When we finally get around at the end of the year doing our Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein episode, I, I've joked it's going to be like a three-episode thing because I'm, I'm going to really want to spend some time on it because it's like I say, if it's if it's not the most important, if it's not the best Universal film ever made, I think it's my favorite because again, I, I have this investiture in it from a, from a young age. It really, it's really the one that got me started with all these films, and that's why one I do thing it you now, you, so. you anyway, mentioned about. Slash, um, you know, Bela the Gypsy biting him, you know, Bela in werewolf form biting Larry Talbot. And that's how the whole thing yeah. starts. And to me, that's always been a, a very symbolic passing of the torch because here you had Bela Lugosi, who's the man who this all started in Dracula. Right. You know, who, because after Cheney Sr. had passed away, I, I mean, I, I'm of the opinion I don't think he would have done Dracula um, had he lived just because of his relationship with Universal at that time. But um, when Cheney Sr. passed away, that kind of upended a lot of things, uh, one of them being Universal's plans yeah. for Dracula. And so we wind up with Bela Lugosi, you know, that made huge success, and that's what started it all, right? And so you have the, that guy who it started with is now 10 years later in a way, anointing the next guy, you know, because after the Wolfman, well, it's Lon Chaney Jr. show for, for the next four or five years. You know, he's the guy starring in all, nearly all of the universal horror films, all of the, the quote, big ones anyways. Um, so I've always, it was, and I'm sure it wasn't intentional yeah. at all, um, but it, I always just felt it was symbolic that, that and in a lot ways their Lugosi's career and Cheney Jr.'s career did have some parallels you know between their personal lives and and the career so as to me that's always been symbolic of how you know Lugosi is the guy that causes Larry Talbot's you know lycanthropy and and then it goes on from there and then, and then he he dies by taking out Lugosi there's such a I'd never even made that connection the circularity of that is just it's just perfect that's really this is a guy who's this thought little, about this late at night come in come in here man that's you don't get you don't don't get there just like watching the movies a couple times that's that's really profound. hours i, I spent that. in school when that's i was great great paying attention for some really yeah. when I was <laughs> you're, just, you're just drawing pentagrams <laughs> on your finger on your hand i had a i had a paper return to me i was in second grade and the only reason I got away with this is because the teacher's aide was my best friend's mom. And so she knew it was me. My head was in the clouds as I was doing some schoolwork. And, and the part where it said name, I wrote Frankenstein. And I didn't realize that I wrote Frankenstein. But she goes back, she goes, she brings it to me. She goes, I assume you're Frankenstein. Put your name on the paper. <laughs> you know, we had, it's funny, I had completely forgotten about this until you mentioned that, Livio. When I was in, middle school we had a creative writing uh prompt one day and i'm trying to remember what the prompt was it, it was it was something to the effect of you know creative write and this was like she was grading us on grammar more than anything just retell a story and i wrote the scene uh where Larry goes with Gwen and uh, and Jenny and gets her fortune told, and then I I wrote through the part where Bela the the gypsy turns, 
And uh, I think I, I think I got an A on that paper, but I was in middle school, and uh, so this has been a forever thing. Um, that's funny. I I completely forgot I I did that. Um, but Jim, to your point, something I'm going to go into uh, territory that some people might not be too fond on, but this is Universal Legacy, and so I kind of want to mention this. I hadn't thought about this until you mention how poetic it is that Bela's Dracula goes out by Larry's the Wolfman. That, so, so that's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That is the whole climax of 2004's Van Helsing. It is, right? Yeah. I so haven't seen that in a the, long time, but yeah. You know, the, um, Hugh Jackman, he gets bitten by a werewolf, so... And the only thing that can kill Dracula is a werewolf. Um, so it's kind of funny that that's uh, that's kind of the, the big plot point. It it also sets up the whole the whole white sure. wolf role playing and and that scene in the nineties, two thousand, whatever, like that. That that this this idea that that you know taking the monster kind of out of the equation that that the the the, the main. Uh, Competition, shall we say, like like Super Bowl opponents uh, are yeah. are yeah. vampires and werewolves in general, and this plays into underworld and all those other things. Is is that is that that is somehow the arch? These are the arch nemeses of each, of each other, and you know, I it's things we just take for granted that I don't even think. Yeah, you know, the people making these films thought that this was going to imprint and become a trope or or a thing. But but they do just like Seodmak, basic you know really inventing werewolf mythology yeah. out of whole cloth. Just, I mean, basing it on yeah. some things, but more or less just making making it up on its own. Like you know the, the silver bullet, the the full moon, the 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 Jekyll and Hyde back and forth transformation, the everything like that are just you know have so no basis in actual Eastern European myth, and and. But they, they again. I would talk about they make such an emotional log and, and logical sense that we just go, okay, yeah, that's great. And we've lived with these. I mean, these these rules, shall we say, were created way before any of us were born. So we we were born into inheriting these 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 are the rules for werewolves, and they hold true you know, all the yeah, way through. I you know, many people, many many people have talked to the to the point of Stephen Matt, like creating a lot of the werewolf mythos as we know it, but. Just to think, like before 1941, yeah. that was that didn't exist. Um, were, werewolf mythos, yeah. You know, back in the yeah, uh, the Middle Ages, it was it was stuff like you sold, you made a deal with the devil, and you could pull in a wolf skin. Or there there was one where I found a wolf skin in the woods, and I put it on, uh, and that was pretty much it. That was werewolf mythology. Um, yeah. So the the moon and I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it, it's neat, right. but it makes right. no sense. There's no logic to it because it's all it's all medieval, and and it wasn't about that. Uh, I had, somewhere I have a book that had it was all about monster movies, and it was all about like the actual legends, right? And and some of them are hilarious. They're, I mean, the, the one werewolf one is yeah. If you drink water, no, from a yeah, that's a big one. Rainwater, something like that. But they get to the point where like like you can defeat a vampire. Oh, there, there was the werewolf one that if you can if you can take your door key on a string and hit him in the head nice. with it, he can't come in your house. 
And there's a vampire one that if you if you put seeds on your roof, the vampire who obviously has some sort of ADD will be compelled to go on your roof and count all the seeds until the sun comes up and destroys them. Like these are things that like they're fascinating and they're interesting and and they obviously served a purpose at the time. I don't know what purpose the seed idea served, but obviously something. Um, but but they don't they haven't lasted and i think they haven't lasted just because a, a more contemporary audience looks you know where there's automobiles and airplanes and you know typewriters and things looks at these things and just goes this doesn't i can't, can't invest in this because it doesn't follow a thing the the silver it's like a purity sense and 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 yeah and because it's by i know it's borrowed from that's borrowed from the vampire mythology obviously that vampires sound like silver so it it kind of makes a sense that these two types of creatures, vampires and werewolves, both have this issue with silver. They don't have a problem with gold or they don't have a problem with copper. They don't have like that. It's silver. It's the purity of thing, like you said, um, which is, which is neat. And, and it's prevalent enough. It's prevalent enough that you can get it too. Like you can get silver. You can melt down, as we see, you can melt down your amulets. You can melt down your silverware. You can melt down whatever, you know, and, and make silver for yourself. If it was, if it was some like, well, I mean, like in Marvel, Mm -hmm. It becomes like a moonstone. Yeah, yeah. Remember for werewolf by night or, or what have you. Um, if it was that rare, then it wouldn't be accessible enough to the normal person who's trying to fight werewolves, like in Monster Squad or, or what you have go, you. So, um, yeah, this this mythology yeah, makes, back, makes total sense to be werewolf of London. Now. You know, that was in nineteen five. As before, yeah. Any any of that was created, and all of that is missing. You know, there there is no full moon. There is no silver that that kills them. It's just regular gun. You know, gunshot. Um, even him in werewolf form, he, he yeah. still has maintains a lot of his faculties. I mean, you actually see, you know, um, Doctor Glendon. Yeah. You actually see him put on his scarf, put on his on his coat as after right. he's transformed to go out and stalk and and try to, you know, kill someone. So it's, it's yeah, so a lot yeah. a lot more to do with yeah. Jekyll and Hyde than than than. The ver you know the later version, but I, I mean that's just that we we did Werewolf of London pretty early on uh, Scott and I in in the show uh, in in 2021 I think and you know we we wanted to and it was interesting it's not one of my favorite Universal films I think it's wonderful but I think it it's it's mostly just it's made by wonderful people and it's made it's a very well made film and it's a very interesting film and it's uh, important but it's weird that its importance is that it, it was like the beta test for werewolves with universal yeah. that just didn't quite work and then they 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 went back to the drawing board with a whole different team and concept and then the second the second version is what worked it's 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 interesting seeing them trying it and it not connecting henry hall's character is not likable and i think more than anything more than any of the aspects of the story i think the real um the real success of the Wolfman series is how likable Larry Talbot is, how much you just, you, you feel like you know him right away. You, you get, you get him, you get, there's, there's something very upbeat, especially in the Wolfman, the first film, there's something very upbeat about him. And yet he's already a tragic character. He's already lost a mother. He's already just lost a brother. You know, um, he's already got in a strange relationship with his father. Like you get it. Like he's a real person and you want him to be okay. Henry Hall just comes off. He, you know, he's got a, he's got a fiance. He just ignores all the time. He's just he's very you know he just doesn't have that agreeableness. And I also think in 1941, the the 
the real Americanness of Larry Talbot was something that I think probably helped a lot in in the war years of of the fil- these films coming out is that Americans could go see this movie and root for someone who sounded and who talked and moved and dressed like they did um, as opposed to a, some older British man or, or, or what have you. So I, you know, I, I, and I, my finally, I just, I, I don't think you get the, the likableness enough. I, I think Larry Talbot's likability is, is performance by a skilled actor, but it's also Cheney channeling his own honesty and, and upfrontness too. And I, I think that absolutely is such a, as much as the makeup, as much as the stories and everything else, it's, it's the character. It's Larry Talbot. It's, it's this guy who this awful thing has happened to. And we follow a series of tragedies and adventures side by side, all the way through the thing that just, that, that, that's, that, that's why this landed and the, the early. Yeah. I, I've often wondered just because Werewolf of London didn't quite hit the mark. Who held on? Who decided, like, who was like, you know, that didn't yeah. quite hit it, but what if, you know, I, I'm, I've always been curious who held on and who decided, and because it could have easily been, yeah, Werewolf of London didn't hit, that's it, we're werewolves, you know, um, so it is kind of fascinating that they decided, like, yeah, let's yeah. come back. Because it's, it's, because it's, it's not the Lemleys, yeah. it's the Lemleys when yeah. Werewolf of London is made, but it's not the Lemleys in '41. I don't know who's in charge. I can't remember who's in charge of Universal at that point. But yeah, you're right. Someone, someone held on to this idea. Like, I wonder if it was Pierce. Thing. I, I, Livio. I swear they talk about this because the remember Pierce. Oh, Pierce. Have, have you seen the? There was a like a proto makeup on Henry Hull, and it was it was much more similar to, to yeah. Cheney's makeup, and uh, it was actually Henry Hull. Henry Hull objected, Hull objected to, to it, it just from a narrative yeah. standpoint. He said because in the script, uh, some of the characters recognize him. Right. And he was like, "I'm unrecognizable with this makeup." So I mean, it makes sense for the plot, and right. you know, props props to Henry Hull really? for uh, for going that route. But I, I wonder. And I do think it's is. a great makeup. Yeah. It's a cool makeup. I mean, I think I mean, I think Henry Hull looks like amazing. I I wish they made more toys and stuff yeah. based on his yeah. version. It's a neat with the code and everything. Um, if you ever seen what was it? Ninety yeah. one. 90 or 91, the Jack Nicholson called Wolf. Wolf. Was yeah. Great and yeah. Werewolf of London. That, Very similar. You know, with the sideburns and all. Baker is actually the one who did yeah. the makeup on that. He even talked about it in documentary. Oh, you know, that's, that's right. That, that's right. Um, and, cool. but regarding Pierce's Wolfman makeup, there's a, I think it was like a TV thing. Was it late 50s or early 60s for Beauty and the Beast? And Jack Pierce did the makeup on it. And he's the the beast is the Wolfman. I mean, straight is the the same and everything. Wow! I have to try to see if I can find a picture of it. I saw. I remember or something a long long time ago. Hey, (laughs) I know that. Because you could imagine the powers to be Universal going to Pierce and going like, we're all obviously in the realm of speculation here, but you can imagine them going to him, going like, what else you got? Because we just did another, you know, Frankenstein movie. You know, it's fine, but Karloff doesn't want to play Frank the monster anymore. So, you know, and or you could just see like him having something and going, "What's that? That's a Wolfman." Wait a second. Try it again. 
don't know. There's there's like a little there's a there's a book there, right? There's a movie there of like someone like like it, it's interesting. Cause I, mean, I mean, I've watched all the the Tom. I've listened to Tom Weaver doc, uh, commentaries, and I've watched the the it's John Landis hosts mm-hmm. the documentary on the Wolfman, the official Wolfman discs and, and whatnot. So, um, and I've never heard that quite the evolution. I know. I think. I mean, Sion Mac was critical in it, but I don't know if he was given the right the mission right. saying write a Wolfman movie or because what's the what's the original title of the Wolfman like Destiny Destiny yeah yeah it's something <laughs> it's it's much more abstract and you could see it's them narrowing it down what into what Kirk it became yeah. original I think thought or or desired for the Wolfman to be is really prevalent if you watch the movie um, Bride of the Monster 1950 which stars Lon Chaney though not in the the horror role but and I know in, in his original or first treatment of, of the Wolfman script you never it's a lot like well a little bit like She-Wolf of London too you never really see the monster you don't know all in the guy's head you, you know it, it's things but you don't right, you don't actually right. see it but you know Universal thankfully for all of us watching the movie said no we want we want we monsters want- <laughs> there. yeah We'll, yeah, which we'll save that for She Wolf of London, because <laughs> that, that this is. I mean, that, that was when 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 we did that episode. That's that's our kind of theory is that someone someone who'd written that idea, uh, someone who really was invested at least in the idea of like it's all in Larry Talbot's head. He wasn't really a werewolf, and then they discarded that. Went well. <laughs> what if we try that with Sorry. Women? And there you go. Like because it's it's the nineteen forties. The women are hysterical, so that all makes sense, right? So. And then we have She-Wolf of London, which is, I think, next to Invisible Woman, one of our le- one of the least well-regarded of the primary Universal films. Um, yeah, but not about we did. We let's did talk a, a little bit about anyway. the. Uh, um, it's one of my. It's I'd say it's one of the most important elements, uh, just in the the series of the films, as well as it, it's still popping up in in places today. And Seudmak wrote it, the poem. The old poem, even a man is pure in heart and says his prayers by night. Um, How awesome is that? I mean, that's just like, yeah. Because it's it's exposition as a poem. Like you do the poem and Mm -hmm. the poem explains the rules right there. And you you can reiterate it every time. I mean, you can change it slightly like they do in, in, uh, they change it from autumn moon is bright to moon is full and bright. Because obviously you want this to work even when it's not autumn, um, but but it, but it it's it, it again you know it's the it's a thing that's so perfect and simple that you you can let it go by and you don't realize like yeah they made a poem that tells you the rules of the Wolfman and there you go and and people I think who don't I'd be willing to bet that people don't even have, have seen the film or only maybe oh, yeah. seen the film once could almost like, like the poem, right? Like I mean, the poem times really, in the first yeah. film. <laughs> like the first 10 yeah. minutes of yeah. the film of that. So. Yeah. 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 And then um, everyone, everyone well, in yeah, the village is really into it. Uh, I mean. And then what Gwen mentioned. Uh, right. And yet they're surprised when one And Gwen that. mentions uh, Little Red Riding Hood's uh, a werewolf story. And yeah, it's a werewolf story. Yeah. The folklore, yeah, yeah. grandma, yeah, <laughs> um, right? Yeah, yeah. It just, yeah, it's it sells it sells the idea, and you're like, okay, well, yeah. I mean, if someone made up a, a legend about it within you know this world we're watching in in the Wolfman, then then that it must be 
possible, right? It's not, it's not something. And, and that's the other thing that I think none of the other main universal monster movies, um, Larry Talbot's not the first werewolf. Yeah. A werewolf bites him. There was a werewolf before him. There, it, there's not been a Frankenstein monster before Frankenstein. And we never talk, we never mention or hear about how Dracula became a, a vampire. Was he bit by another vampire or is he the first and only vampire? Like, is he the prototype? So Larry Talbot just sort of stumbles into an existing phenomenon that's ongoing. And at least in where you know where where he he's at, to the point where someone's made up a poem right. about it at some point, and it's been passed on here and more. Um, um, but 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 it's great because some people treat it as uh, some people treat it as a fun legend. Some some people dismiss it outright, like 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 Sir John. Uh, you know he. Sir John has a has a logical explanation for what it represents. Um, Gwen Conliffe, I think, just treats it as like a novelty and a way to sell merchandise. <laughs> okay. I guess, like, do you, like, like, really, does, does she does she just use it to sell those canes? Like, as soon as he buys one, yeah. like, she just order another one. Like, this is so, I can sell these canes like crazy. It's great. I just tell, I do the poem, and everyone buys them. I don't know. Um, yeah, but it, but you know the creature from Black Lagoon. There's, I guess, there's creatures before him because they discovered the right. fossil of the the hand, right? But you know, it, it's 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 like the idea of in this pocket world, this is just a reality, and the 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 story of werewolves doesn't start with Larry Talbot. He just he comes yeah. in, in the middle. It, and it then is kind of fun, you know. A lot of people, have, I've had people mention, yeah, what? How did Bela? You know, how did he? What's his story? You know, he's um, I think his right. his scar is like on his forehead. So you know, he's he had to be bitten yeah, in the, the face. You know, um, so obviously there's one before him, and, and uh, yeah. it, it is, you know, right. it's all right. narrative, and it's all uh, you know, what was hot and what um, so you get Larry Talbot is is the one who's fortunate enough he doesn't die. Uh, but Vela dies, um, and you know the one before him. Who knows? But 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 because but because of that, Larry Talbot has to kill everybody he yeah. attacks. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to have yeah. other werewolves, and and that never happens within the context of the Mr. Thing. He never. He never. Although me Frankenstein. Just realized that. Does Mr. McDougal become a vampire well, he, or become a werewolf? Remember? Oh my God, is it listed as. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I've got to get that. Done. I'm not going to say anything. That's really funny. Oh, because that guy's like a jerk even before he becomes immortal. Oh, that but, sucks. What a pain. Back to the, we were talking about you know, the poem and, and how everyone in the town seems to know it. I think that's another aspect, you know, of, of anybody watching, watching the film. You know, you can relate the American, you know, Larry Talbot yeah. coming in and, and hearing the stories about werewolves and, you know, he he just, he, he listened to it, yeah. but he's dismissive. He's like, you know, listen, if you want to sell me a cane, whatever, I'll pay, pay you what it is. Um, but then that, that as the story goes on, then that slowly turns more into, wait, is this real? You know, is this actually me? And then that's where that, yeah. that kind of inner conflict comes into. And it's, it's definitely a right. uh, it, it makes something that's 
should not be relatable to the normal person, it makes it relatable when people are watching it. Right. Yeah. In the episode, we talked about how like Sir John Talbot and Maria Alspinskaya are on like, they're like the devil and angel on Larry Talbot's shoulders. And one of them's like, you know, it's all hogwash. And the other one's like, no, it's real. You know, and he, he's, he's trying to figure out where reality exists between these two kind of things. He's navigating his way there and he doesn't do it easily. But, um, and, and I think, I think it's neat that I know, I know one of the other earlier iterations of the script, uh, Larry Talbot was a, he's, he's just a, he's just a mechanic who comes to fix the telescope, right? Yeah. He's not the son of whatever, but I think it's important that he's, he's part of this village and yet he's not in the beginning. Like even like before he becomes a werewolf, Larry Talbot's an outsider already. Like he's already not normal because he's this big American dude in this whole little town of little Welsh, people like his dad is is it is it tom weaver in the in the in the commentary on wolfman yeah. goes like what did larry talbot's mom look like <laughs> he's, he's like so a head taller than claudia yeah. it's like yeah. <laughs> what did his mom look? oh um that's a great that's i that, that stands out in that commentary i think i heard that when i was like 20 something and i still remember how funny that is um yeah uh but but it, it's like his doom right is to always be outside of things he can never quite be he can never really be a husband to somebody. He can never really be, you know, he, he, he you know, a brother or anything like that. He's, 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 he's the part of the part of the curse is that he, he, he'll kill. He's a good man who kills and can't stop it. But part of the curse is that he's, he does no place in this world now, like too, like that's, that's something that, that, that again, you're just, and, and the parallels to Cheney's real life, if just keep, popping up you 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 know the 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 tragedy of lon cheney and the tragedy of larry talbot are, are tough to untangle and i don't think he needed i don't think lon cheney needed that tragedy to to play the character really well but i i do think he was able to channel some real things that enabled him to to do the thing he did that that otherwise maybe this wouldn't have had as, as much of a longevity as 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 it does who knows yeah for sure well gentlemen is anything else you guys want to touch on um no i, I don't know i think, think there's yeah a lot of longevity still in in this in the wolfman and these movies um and and i think a big part of that is it's definitely Lon Chaney Jr. And I'm happy that he's he's starting to get, I think, a little more recognition, uh, very deservedly so, um, just from from general. <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he's his career, his legacy is, to your point, Jim, is absolutely going to outlive his father's, and in a way, it already has. I mean, mm-hmm. Lon Chaney Sr. I don't think, and the time he was alive was really known as a is a horror star. I mean, he, he was in hundreds of movies that weren't horror films. He was just known as the man of a thousand faces who could yeah. transform into anything. Um, and the only thing that I think he's really remembered for in a hundred years after these, his movies came out is the fan of the opera. Um, and, and to a lesser extent, the hunchback in Notre Dame, apart from that, you know, 
I don't think you're going to see a lot of people talking about tell it to the Marines, you know, <laughs> anytime soon or anything as good as a movie as that may be. It's just, it's just fallen off. It's, yeah. it's been too long. And hard, hard to find too. I mean, movies like that or West of Zanzibar and, and or, or unholy Cheney's movie, yeah. career, Cheney Jr.'s career um, was the, the one thing. And I know Tom Weaver has mentioned this before too. And I think it's worth pointing out that out of, all the, or the majority of the horror stars, specifically Karloff and Lugosi, he had good roles in A-quality pictures that had nothing to do with horror films after Universal using them as such. Lugosi never did. I mean, I mean which is not a diss on Lugosi, yeah. but he, after Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, he really wasn't in any major production again. Um, Karloff you know, he, yeah. he did he did do the Grinch and and some voice work as older, but it's still That's his true. was pretty strictly in the horror genre. Cheney did Yeah, yeah and none of them had like a high I noon or anything like that. Yeah. The Defiant true. ones. He was in several westerns, you know, bigger budget westerns with A list stars at the time. And, you know, did he obviously did have a drinking problem. That's that's fairly well documented. But despite it, he could still. I mean, Jim, you probably know this better than anybody. Studios aren't going to bring you on if you're not reliable. You know, for whatever. No. whatever yeah, I guess it's around fast, and, yeah. and, and there's many other actors who are so well enough. Yeah, you know, that, and, I mean, until I think he really started to get really sick towards the mid '60s or so, that he could be called on to do these roles whether it be television or, or film. And he's, he, yeah. he's got, he's got a very well rounded career that's outside of the horror genre too. Um, but obviously this is where, where we all know and love him from. So. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the legacy is alive and well, and uh, it's never going to go anywhere. And I think that's, that's a testament to, to Cheney Jr. And um, just, you, you know, I'll, I'll end with this Mark. He has that quote where uh, he says, the Wolfman was my baby and he, w- he wouldn't let anybody else touch it. And I think that's charming and that's heartwarming. And I'm sure as much as a pain in the ass, the, the makeup was, uh, he loved it. And he, he didn't want anybody else to, to take that. And that's, uh, that's part of the reasons it's my favorite. So um, Wolfman. Thanks so much for joining, guys. Uh, this was this is really special. Thank you. We've got you. more of these in the chamber coming up. So uh, Jim and I have have talked, and we've got some fun stuff planned for the future. So uh, if you miss the live stream, if you if you caught the tail end of it, it will be posted in full on the monster page here, and it will be an extra episode uh, for these these fine gentlemen's podcast, the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. So you can listen to it there. Uh, and if you haven't listened to Borgo Pass horror podcast before, what the heck is wrong with you? It's it's the best. Like go go listen to it. It's it's available everywhere. You have like a hundred and twenty right. hours to catch. Yeah. Up on. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks to all of our viewers. Um, I am Ian Bates, also known as Ian the Wolfman, joined by Jim Towns and Olivia Moreno. Uh, you'll see us very very soon. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Y'all take it easy. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode, but the fun does not stop here. 
You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Gould. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.